Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Dusty White. I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune. We are both pastors at Cormdale Church, and Pastor Chris Hamelman of First City Church is here. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today, we're talking about reactionary feminism. I really wish you would have said my name. This is, sorry, my name is Bethany Gilbert. That would have thrown yeah. everybody. It would have. It would have. We would have known you were not telling the truth. Um, hey, listeners, what's going on? No snacks today. We're a little, and we're no a little disappointed. And no Bethany today. Well, she's on vacation it's in the UK, so that's it's a win for her, loss wow. for us. Win for her, loss for us. She sent me a snapshot of her worshiping in, in Westminster Cathedral for the Evensong service on Saturday. And so we're all jealous of of Bethany right now. But we are talking about um, Mary Harrington, who has written a new book called Feminism Against Progress. And I heard uh, another friend of mine interviewed her on a podcast recently. And um, I think what she's doing is interesting. And it's um, it, it connects with some broader social and cultural movements that are alive right now. And so I found um, a piece in public discourse where Mary Harrington basically sort of gives in a few, in a short article, the, the summary thesis of her book. And so that's what we're going to talk about is just, uh, she calls her point of view reactionary feminism, which I think is an interesting phrase. And she's tapping around the edges of some cultural realities that I think more and more people are starting to identify and name. And her approach to those things is quite interesting. Um, Chris was just doing work on the internet to figure out like, who else is Mary Harrington besides the author of the book? Feminism she's Against kind Progress. of elusive. She's, she's a, a she's writer a, in the UK. That's what she's we a know. British woman who is a writer and a thinker and, uh, and has a particular interest in these things, but this is the first book she's written. And, uh, it's an interesting case that she's making. Let me, uh, do you have any thoughts there, Dusty? Before no, we dive in? I don't, I don't have very many thoughts yet. I'm going to read, um, a, a few excerpts from this article just to help you understand the case that Mary Harrington is making. And obviously, I think that feminism has been such an important shaping influence in uh, 20 and 21st century Western culture that any trends in feminism, especially in sort of the academic world, are things we need to pay attention to. And um, Mary Harrington is pushing back pretty sharply against some trends that she sees in second wave feminism um, that she feels like need to be what would you call it? Counteracted, contradicted, uh, contested. And um, so let me read a few excerpts from the article. She says she is trying to lead women to fight back against the atomized, dehumanized, and commodified transhumanist social order under which we've all been living for half a century. This is an order that's been marching under the banner of feminism but is better understood as a profoundly anti-woman libertarianism of the body. That's interesting to me, an anti-woman libertarianism of the body. That's what she suggests feminism has been marching under for the last 50 years, or, or that's been marching forward under the name of feminism. Here's how she describes her fight back. I've dubbed this fight back reactionary feminism. I use reactionary in recognition that progress in its contemporary form wages war on human nature. It views freedom 
as best served by reframing embodied men and women as atomized, desexed, fungible, and interchangeable humans composed of disembodied identity plus body parts that can be reordered at will like meat Legos. That is a great term. That's her analogy. Your body is a meat Lego. You can just take off the parts you want and rearrange them. So she's pushing back on that. Also disgusting to think about. It is, but it's a great, it's a great, it's a, it's a powerful analogy, right? Because she's saying that's how the modern view of identity treats the body is that it's just, you know, we're assembled like Legos and you just take them apart and reassemble them. Um, She also says, I use the word feminism in recognition of the fact that proposing to atomize desex and remodel humans has profound negative impacts on women. If we are to defend women's interests under this order, we must do so with a feminism against progress. In the book, I argue that feminism as such isn't evidence of moral progress in some absolute sense. Rather, it comprises the aggregate response to ways that women's lives were transformed by the Industrial Revolution and, crucially, by the departure of work from the home. That, those two sentences are very important because what she's saying is some people treat feminism as moral progress in an absolute sense. Like we've moved from the dark days of patriarchy when women were sort of like second-class citizens, and now we've made this moral progress in a new direction. And she says that's too linear a narrative what feminism actually is, is the aggregate response to all kinds of ways that women's lives were transformed by the industrial revolution, by the departure of work from the home and so forth. And so there's, it's too simplistic to say, this is just a a linear moral narrative. Actually, this is a social movement that takes into account a lot of different factors that have reshaped our lives as human beings and as families and as men and women over the last couple hundred years. And the point she makes is the irony in all of that is now feminism is actually hurting women right? rather than the linear progress of continued benefit. Now it's actually eating itself in some ways. Right. So this is an interesting contrast. Let me read the contrast. She says this response, this, this aggregate response that we call feminism was broadly characterized by a back and forth between what I've called the feminism of care and the feminism of freedom. The feminism of care makes the case for women's interests as bound up with our embodied nature, especially as mothers and the relational ties and obligations that come with this. On the other hand, the feminism of freedom argued that the best means of securing women's interests is for us to enter the market on the same terms as men, and where necessary, to socialize domestic obligations, for example, via institutional childcare. These twin poles formed a rich dialogue until the mid-20th century, at which point the feminism of freedom won. It did so via another tech transition, the arrival of the pill, and then legal abortion. So what she's saying is early feminism had these two movements, a feminism of care, basically focused on how do we care more fully for women as women, and then this reality of freedom. And that sort of took the shape that freedom means women having the freedom to enter the market on the same terms as men. And that there was a good sort of dialogue between these two points of view for a long time. And then in the mid 20th century, the feminism of freedom won. And that's what she wants to argue against. She wants to say, and when we went there, we bought into a whole cultural understanding of freedom that has on net been really bad for women as embodied human beings. Those two different 
branches of feminism were pretty fascinating to me as I read this. Yeah. It's a pretty good way to summarize sort of the two poles that have traditionally been present within the feminist movement. She basically says that feminism of freedom bought into this enlightenment understanding that freedom is liberation from all constraints. And obviously the way that has read childbearing is that childbearing is a, is a constraint on women's freedom, having kids, having to raise kids, having to be a mom. These are constraints on women's freedom. And so what we need to do is liberate women from these constraints. And so this leads to what Mary Harrington calls cyborg feminism, um, which basically the way she describes it is what we've essentially bought into is that to be to be fully free as a woman means to be a cyborg. Like it, it takes away all the distinct things that make us male and female. And just to say there's this, this sort of like generic personhood and that's that's what we're after is, is that's what real freedom looks like is this sort of cyborg related personhood. She says in this cyborg era, what passes as feminism is in truth, a radical libertarianism of the body. This feminism rejects rigid definitions between sexes, between human and animal, between human and machine. To put it in another way, cyborg feminism wages war on human nature in the name of freedom and radical self-fashioning. So what is to be done? She suggests we must be radical in the sense of tackling the roots of the problem. And that means feminist fight back against this version of freedom and of progress and against libertarianism of the body. And she points to here the detransitioners who are leading the pushback against transgenders. And she says, we can learn from these people because what they, what this growing group of men and women realized is that they bet their bodies on the promise of radical dissociation in, in the realm of self-fashioning. And she says, they found flesh isn't so easily severed from consciousness. Many now live with irreversible scars. Most describe the journey toward reconciliation with their own bodies as a long, painful one. Backing out of this blind alley means extending the logic of detransition well beyond those who embraced gender surgeries, all the way to making peace with our embodied, sexed natures as men and women and creating a new moral consensus on that basis. Now, I don't think Mary Harrington is writing as a Christian. I'm not sure what her religious beliefs are, what her worldview is. But you will notice that what she's essentially naming here is exactly what Genesis 1 gives us. Is it a radical, embodied, sexed human nature as male, man, and female, woman? And that that is foundational to human anthropology. And she's basically saying, from her point of view, that's exactly what real feminism needs to return to, is a, a reality that to be a woman is to be a embodied, sexed being and that what that means to be a woman is not a limitation. It's not something to be overcome. It's essential to human nature as manhood is as well. Here's the, here's the next move that Mary Harrington makes that I really like. She, in this, in this thing she's calling reactionary feminism, she's saying, hey, I'm not calling for a war by women against men or even a war by women against culture. I'm calling for a, a sort of movement of reaction and reframing 
for all human beings. So this is what she says. The power to create a consensus has always belonged to women. So the radical project of reactionary feminism is to pioneer and propagate this consensus. The aim is not a final victory over men or over our own sexed bodies, but rather a way of living together that furthers our common good. And so she, the, the fascinating thing is she basically is going to aim at three things. She has, I'm, I'm getting, she's going to get very practical here. She's going to say there's three very specific moves we need to make to push back against what she calls this, this radical libertarianism of the body that has taken over uh, feminism and really taken over all of our cultural dialogue. Here are the three moves she's going to take. You might find these somewhat controversial. Um, maybe you don't believe that they're the three right moves. But here's what she says. She says, here are, oh, I want to read uh, how she describes this because I thought it was really fascinating. She says, one of the things I discovered when writing Feminism Against Progress is that it's much easier to make a critique than to suggest what to do about it. When you start suggesting policies, someone is bound to hate it. In the end, I gave up trying to please everyone, and I just made three arguments I wish someone had offered me when I was university age, so I wouldn't have needed to spend the following 15 years reverse engineering them from first principles and sustaining a great many scars in the process. So she's basically saying, I wish someone would have told me these things when I was 20, because it took me a lot of years and a lot of hard scars to learn these three things. And so I like a person who's saying, basically, here's what I would tell myself 15 years ago as just three starting points that would have helped me arrive at a more humane and healthy understanding of personhood. She says, these are simple, but very countercultural principles in today's atomized world. Here they are. Number one, if you want to be a mother, marriage is not a patriarchal institution designed to oppress you. It's the minimum unit for human scale solidarity. So she's saying we've got to reclaim marriage. Marriage is not patriarchal. It's, it's, it's based on human solidarity. So that's the first thing I would have told myself. Marriage is not a patriarchal institution that oppresses you. It's basic principle of human solidarity. Second, there are times when single sex social spaces are important for both men and women. And three, close to the heart of modern women's dissociation from our own bodies and the countless forms of exploitation that follow from it is a technology that was sold as emancipatory to us, which is the pill. So she is very anti-hormonal birth control. She says, actually, that's one simple thing we should be pushing back against is that technology. The first two, I can see why they're going to be controversial, but you could probably get a lot of people, even conservatives, to like, amen, the pill one, that's that's going to ruffle feathers across the spectrum. Yes, it sure is. And she's going to, uh, she's going to make a case for it. Yeah. Um, I like it. Let's it, start. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, based on those three things, you know, you mentioned earlier, we were wondering about her background. She sounds very Catholic she in does. some of her, at least the framework. And so whether or not she is or isn't, I think it is interesting how she is drawing on Christian tradition in yeah. a lot of ways and Christian kind of social teaching in a lot of ways. And so, um, for, I think, especially for our listeners, this is, it, let, let's just grant for a second that she's not a believer. She's drawing on some pretty beautiful common grace elements here that we can get behind. And I think we're starting to see this happen in feminists like her. There's a return to, uh, natural law in what kind of feminist argument, which I think is something we should be 
we should be supporting and getting behind. Well, and it's a return to embodiedness as essential. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing that, again, Genesis 1 gives us, but also natural law has always given us, right? God has inscribed uh, reality on our bodies and in our createdness. And so she is absolutely recovering this, the, the part of her pushback against the pill, and I'll read a few of these lines later on in the article, but her pushback is basically, it's an attempt to like neutralize women's embodiedness. It's, a, it's basically an attempt to take what's very central to a woman's physical existence and sort of like eliminate it so that she can participate in the marketplace in the same way that men can. And in so doing, it's sort of a, a way of working against embodiment. Mm -hmm. And th that's, I, I think that is, you know, there are Christians who make that argument, but there are more and more secular people and even people who, I don't know what you would call them, like the people that we used to sort of call like, you know, hippies and people like the, the granola movement, the yeah. people that are very yeah, yeah, into yeah. like a natural, natural yeah. life that are just like, yeah, yeah. Why would we, why would we embrace some like artificial technology that's designed to do something unnatural to us. That's not a step in the right direction. And so there is this interesting synergy between a, a Christian moral viewpoint and more and more people who are waking up to like the way that our lives are sort of controlled by big pharma. Yeah. The revenge of natural law. That's what we, what we might call it. The thing I'm interested in here is the bigger narrative. So, so she's basically saying there's a bigger narrative we've bought into about freedom and autonomy and personhood that's, that feminism has sort of the, the language has been language of feminism, but actually underneath that are these huge assumptions about reality that, I, that she thinks are just wrong. And so let me read one of them. She says, the 20th century led us to believe that life is better in inverse proportion to how bound we are to others. The more unfettered we are, the better. So that's just a basic assumption most people have in, in an individualistic world is that, you know what, the more, <laughs> the freer I am, the more unconnected I am, the more, the fewer bonds and obligations I have, the better. So she, so she says, if that's true, if, if we buy that as a basic principle, then marriage is at best optional because it's a bond that limits my freedom. And she says, the suffering this visits on children compounds down the generations. And I think we could all say, as pastors, right? The difference in how people view marriage now versus how they would have viewed it 80 or a hundred years ago is dramatically different and has tremendous consequences. For sure. for sure. And so here, this is a fascinating line. She says, if we are to swim against this tide of atomization, we must reclaim marriage as a covenant, not a contract. Sounds familiar. Come on. Sounds like language we use around here. Sounds like language we use in every premarital counseling appointment. Um, she says, this is, this includes when marriages are not perfect, but simply good enough, which I like yeah, what she's saying is that. like, Hey, it de-romanticizes marriage in a helpful way that just says like, yeah, it's not always going to be amazing because it's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a commitment. It, it requires staying engaged and working through things. I love that line. Which line? The fact that you can be married when it's not perfect, yeah. <laughs> but simply good enough. It's that's, good enough. That's basically your average Tuesday in marriage. Yes. You know? The second thing she wants people to embrace is the reality that single sex social spaces are important for both boys and girls. It's important for us to be around, to have moments where we're just with guys mm -hmm. or where we're just with other girls and that that actually is part of how we are socialized and part of how we uh, learn. She says neither sex can go it alone. So she's not suggesting that, you know, only single sex spaces matter, but she says without positive real world mentorship, 
and peer competition, boys never become good men. And this in turn fuels a dearth of good husbands and fathers, a literally vicious cycle. Leaning out of this doesn't imply sex segregation at every turn, more just being a little more chill about men doing whatever it is they do when no women are present. Yeah, I like that line. And making the feminist case for sex discrimination in those areas, whether prisons, sports, or physically demanding occupations, where sex really does matter. What she's getting at here, it's interesting that she frames this part of the article primarily as the benefits that are created for men. Because she says one of the things you see in the reaction against feminism is that because some feminists have advocated for like, you know, we can't have any single sex social spaces. There should be no place where men just get to hang out with men. Every place a man is, a woman should be. And what that's led to is resentment among men and boys Mm. who tend to like some places where it's just like, I'm just competing with other men or, you know, like this is a space where men can learn how to sort of uh, live as men. And so she's, that's what she's saying there is that that actually creates this vicious cycle where boys don't learn how to be men. And that part of the, the, the feminist solution to that is to celebrate some single sex social spaces, be it sports teams or dangerous jobs or prisons where it's like, yeah, it's okay that there's just men there. Yeah. What I, what she's doing here that I like is one, she is in, in this point of solidarity, she's saying, Hey, feminists, if, if we want men to champion our cause, we also need to care about the health of men. And so, so for, for her to make a feminist argument for pro men, I think is a brilliant move. I think the second thing is, is she's, she's showing, Hey, the results are like, they're clear, like whose spaces are being hurt the most. Like this whole transgender case, like who is going to get hurt the most? It's, it's women. Like men are not threatened. So like sports, like men's sports are not threatened by women wanting to become men and enter those spaces because they're not going to be able to compete, but vice versa, that's a problem. And so she's, she's showing that, Hey, by letting, by, by championing male spaces and, and segregated spaces, actually, this is going to help women thrive. So she keeps underneath this all is a very feminist argument, even though it's not like kind of the traditional feminist sort of liberation thing. It's a very feminist argument in the sense that she wants women to thrive and she recognizes for women to thrive, men need to thrive for both of them to thrive, family thrives, children. So it's really a beautiful argument what what she's getting at. All of this makes a lot of sense for uh, my baseball career right now. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Uh, Right now we're 10 and one. And uh, congrats, last week, by the yeah, way, Coach you, Dusty. Thank you. Ten-year-old baseball is where it's at. But I bring that up to say there was two girls on the last team that we played, and meanwhile, there's a softball game going on at the field right next to us. So when the ten-year-old boy that is pitching for us, who comes from a large Catholic family and has seven siblings, he, the girl gets up to bat, and he he just like he just acts way different. He does not want to, yeah. he doesn't want to yeah. like strike her out. Yeah, He doesn't want to like, well, he just doesn't want to throw as hard as, yeah. you know, he normally is because he's obviously been taught at home. I shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Uh, I treat women, I treat the girls in my house different. So I can't just keep throwing heat or I actually don't want to hit her, you know, cause in 10 year old baseball, you're hitting every, <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. you could just tell like his social, what I would call his social sexuality yeah. had nothing to do with his gender sexuality. Yep. His social sexuality was like, I can't throw the same way right now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Something is going on. Yep. And I think she would make that same argument. Yes. 
All right, so reactionary feminism, three movements. First, reclaim marriage as a covenant, not a contract. Second, reclaim single-sex social spaces. Not all the time, but being more chill about that, as she says. And third, the pill. Rejecting the pill. Here's what Mary Harrington says, and she you, you should go read her on this because she minces no words. It is clear that she is very anti-hormonal birth control, and I realize that's going to be a sensitive subject for some people, but I think that the case she makes here is really interesting and compelling. Here, Let me just read this one sentence, Chris, and see what you think. If the pill was the first cyborg technology... Rejecting the cyborg temptation means rejecting a model of sexuality and more broadly of embodiment and personhood that's structurally reliant on chemical self-neutering. That's a pretty strong wow, statement. that is a strong statement. Structurally reliant. So I'm going to read the paragraph before that. She says, many of the ways young women suffer today are inextricable from the tech-enabled reframing of human sexuality as a fun, cost-free leisure activity. This happens in blithe indifference to the violence this does, to our still-present sexed differences, to women's widespread longing for intimacy, and to our capacity as women to honor our embodied nature. She says reactionary feminists react or push back against the pill, first of all, in the name of pleasure. Uh, pregnancy risk is a robust reason to decline loveless and degrading casual encounters, which I think is a great point. Mm -hmm. We also do so in the name of intimacy. Natural fertility is a sound reason to decline loveless hookups, and a prudent pill refuser will reserve sexual access for a male partner whom she loves and trusts. Many studies show, I will add, that love and trust are associated with better sex. So she's just saying this is also true. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole constellation of factors that are all connected here. Here's a story she tells. One young woman recently read my argument against the pill and rejected coming off it as impractical. Later, she discussed it with her boyfriend, a young man who had hitherto enjoyed living with his wealthy parents and dabbling in unremunerative hobbies. He was thunderstruck by her assertion that she wanted to come off the pill but would not have an abortion. Since their conversation, he has taken concrete steps to get on the housing ladder, to seek more gainful employment, in brief, to make the shift from boy to man. More women will see men make this shift if those men have a proper incentive to do so. Reconnecting sex with responsibility is central to this. Come on. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good case. Which is, can we just say, like, if you just go back two decades, if you got a girl pregnant, you went out and got a job the next day. Yeah. And like, yeah, figured I gotta it out. I got to take care of, yeah. I got a family now. I got to take care of it. You figured it out. And that's why that's, that's what people. I do. can't remember if I yeah. told, I think and, I told this story on this podcast. I, I hired a guy recently to do some work at my house and he, it's a construction related field and he clearly was having a hard time finding labor. I mean, everybody's having a hard time finding labor right now. So he was talking to me about how tight the labor market is. And I was like, well, I got a lot of guys in my church. Like what kind of guy are you looking for? And he said, I'll tell you my ideal employee. It's a guy who just graduated high school and got his girlfriend pregnant. <laughs> Here's why. Yeah. Cause he needs to make a lot of money 
and he's motivated to work. Yeah. Wow. I was like, that's a fascinating statement from, I mean, that's like, this guy's 60 years old, you know, wow. leading, a, leading a company. He just yeah. got loaded up with responsibility. Right. But he's, yeah. he's naming the same thing Mary yeah. Harrington is, is naming, which is that when, when I can't have, when, the, when there's no possibility of just casual consequence, free sexual hookups, it does create a real sense of responsibility that does cause people to grow up. And, and Mary Harrington is saying that's good for women. It's good for men. It's good for kids. It's good for the whole society. Yeah, and she's saying the pill has neutered that whole thing. Yes. Or at least delayed it. Yeah. Yes. I, let me just one more thought on this point that I think one of the problems is for, I think for, let me speak to Christians and spe- specifically Christians, is I don't think we've been as thoughtful and as reflective on this point on the pill. Oh, yeah. Because I think. Because there's not a Bible verse about it, Chris. There's not a Bible verse about it. And, and we think of in such practical terms. We think, okay, I'm married. Um, I want to have a family, so I'm not, you know, I'm not the part of the hookup culture, but there's still a sense in which we have not thought through the implications of cyborg technology, so to speak, one on women's bodies, just the health concerns with this, but two, how it, even, even within the context of marriage, this disembodiment has consequences. So for Christians to be thoughtful about this and even do the hard work of potentially reverse engineering some things in their marriage and in their lives that um, undoes some of the effect of this, I think is stuff we've, we've, we've got to work through, I think pastorally, but also in our church communities, uh, because if we're going to push back against some of the stuff in the culture, we've got to be willing to make some of these hard decisions and reject sort of the, the, the consequences and the lifestyle that the pill and other things that we've bought into uncritically ha- and the ways that those have affected us. So I'm, I'm not saying that those aren't hard conversations. I'm not saying those aren't difficult pastoral situations, but I'm putting it out there. Like this needs to happen. This has to happen. Five or six years ago, we had a whole little mini series on here with our friend Jen Newman about uh, birth control and contraception. Uh, Jen made this exact same statement that I'm about to read from Mary Harrington. Mary Harrington writes, a final reason reactionary feminists reject the pill is in the name of reconnecting with our bodies. Our fertility is not a problem in need of a fix. And I remember Jen saying that same thing that like part of the reframing or rethinking is we need to embrace that fertility is not a problem in need of a fix. It's something to be stewarded. It's something to be, um, you know, taken care of. It's not a problem to be solved. And Mary Harrington goes on to say recentering normal female physiology via practices such as cycle tracking is a crucial act of resistance to the dissociative cyborg paradigm and the loveless hostile transactional capture of human intimacy and human sexuality by the market. So you notice she like she's using the, the phrase cyborg over and over again. And it is a strong image, right? It's like this robotic image, but I think she's, doing this intentionally because she's trying to drive home if we are embodied creatures and we are made as men or as women, anything that pushes us into sort of like a gender neutral, gender fluid, interchangeable, Lego-like, cyborg-y kind of existence is something that's not in favor of human flourishing. It does not work in the direction of helping us become more human. And so this is then her case for reactionary feminism. And, and you mentioned, Chris, this really is, I mean, she would consider herself a feminist. Like she's not yeah. saying, yeah. she's not trying to yeah. be like a totally. non-feminist. She's saying real feminism 
must be reactionary against this libertarianism of the body that has actually decentered female expression and existence in the world in the name of sort of this, you know, interchangeableness. And um, so I think this is, that's why this movement fascinates me, not just because there are ways that it overlaps with a Christian and biblical view of personhood, but because it also is, I think, an interesting pushback to the ways that the cultural narrative has gotten uh, off the tracks mm-hmm. and, and where, where this is a place where we can make some natural law common cause with some people who may not start from a biblical paradigm themselves, but who are seeing some of the same dysfunction in society. Reading this whole article, it made me think about how we live in this culture. We talk about this a lot around here about how we have freedom from things because we have this American mindset, right, Bob? And kind of what she's saying here is in, in the, in the bracket of feminism, a true feminist has a freedom to right. a certain freedom to be a woman, yeah. freedom to embrace her embodiedness yeah. and her human nature. Yeah. Yeah. Which also embraces this social order yeah. and kind of this old moral consensus, as she would say. Yeah. Against this libertarianism of the body, which I think is an amazing phrase. So uh, I want to, I have not personally read the book yet. It's on my list, Feminism Against Progress. It just came out this past month. So it's a fairly new book. But again, we will link this article in the show notes so that you can go read. This is, a, I think, a talk she did in Washington, D.C., just sort of summarizing the substance of her book. And so you can go read it. Um, I, I do think this is one of the, for those of us who are interested in these kinds of questions about anthropology, personhood, cultural narratives, this is an important um, book for us to be familiar with. And uh, I hope um, to see these arguments continue to gain some traction because I, um, I think they are pushing back in important ways against um, the dehumanizing idolatries that are present in Western culture. Well, the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or maybe even some future podcast topics, you can send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.